you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Marcus here to introduce to you a very special sham fiction. This episode is our first Just the Fix shamthology. Now, normally on the show, we give you a setup for each property, followed by a reading and a discussion of the writing process. But here, all you're getting is the cold, hard fix. That's right. All 12 of the original stories we've read for you so far on Sham Fiction compiled into one episode of Easy Listening. Consider it your literary clip show. If you tune into the show to hear us chat or don't want to revisit these classics, including my spot-on English accent, fear not. Our regularly scheduled episodes will resume on Sunday. Consider this a bonus. Now, without further ado, we present to you our first ever Just the Fix Shamthology. From episode one, Eric Writes Lost, based on the television series created by Jeffrey Lieber, J.J. Abrams, and Damon Lindelof. The survivors of Oceanic Flight 815 had taken shelter in the shadow of the hill. Several fires had been lit, and many small animals were now roasting on sticks over the flames. This was mostly thanks to the skill of John Locke, who insisted that his prowess with a sling was something every boy had learned growing up, well, wherever John Locke had come from. (laughs) Kate didn't trust him, or the fact that he had slipped back off into the woods after delivering the bounty. Then again... She didn't trust anything about this island. She was tired. Ever since they had found the wreckage of the cockpit, she hadn't been able to sleep more than a few hours a night. This last night, she had awoken on four separate occasions, soaked in sweat, a set of mysterious symbols floating back and forth through her mind. Walt! Walt! (laughs) Michael began shouting from the far end of the camp at the very bottom of the hill. Kate turned to watch as the older man scrambled through the underbrush and erupted from the forest near Charlie and Hurley's campfire. Michael looked frantic, and Vincent began barking from the other end of camp. Michael shouted, Walt! again, before Hurley stood to calm him. Obviously, the young boy had wandered off again. She turned back to the mystery box that she held in her hand. It was difficult to see up there at the top of the hill, but the moon was bright. It was a small black cube inlaid with the same symbols that were hauntingly familiar to Kate. She turned it a few times in her hand, wondering how it had ended up in the wreckage of the cockpit. Kate, said a voice from behind. She turned. It was Jack, looking a bit haggard, like they all did, but the stubble on his face suited him. She quickly pocketed the cube. You didn't want to eat? he asked. I'm not really one for rats, she responded, uncrossing (laughs) her legs and standing. Well, there may not be much choice for a while, he said wryly. Well, I'm not holding out for a three-star restaurant, Jack. I'm just not hungry. (laughs) He stepped towards her and put a reassuring hand on her shoulder. Okay, just take care of yourself. I will. What's happened to Walt? She asked, turning to look down the hill at Michael and Hurley by the fire. Jack shrugged. You know how kids are, he said simply. (laughs) It's dangerous out there, Jack. Michael is right to be worried. Whatever killed the pilot hasn't been seen or heard in 16 days, Jack finished for her. (laughs) Yeah, she agreed. And I don't like it. 
I'm telling you, we have to stay the hell away from that thing, said a loud voice from the opposite side of the hill. Kate and Jack turned away from the bright camp towards the dark shadow of the other slope. They could just barely distinguish the shirtless form of Sawyer gesticulating <laughs> with his arms as he followed Saeed out of the jungle. Come on now, put it down, shouted Sawyer. Saeed ignored him and approached Kate and Jack. Whoa, Sawyer, what's got you riled up? Jack called down the hill. Saeed answered for him. We found where the signal was coming from. As he approached the top of the hill and the light from below, Kate noticed that Saeed was carrying the radio transceiver, which was strapped around his shoulder with a bit of canvas. Yeah, we! More like John Locke found it and we found him! said Sawyer as they crested the hill and stopped in front of Kate and Jack. Saeed, you're talking about the distress signal? probed Kate. Yes, he responded, shifting the transceiver so that she could see it clearly. I removed the rubber coating from the few wires to intrude static to the signal. Everything under 42 hertz is completely washed out, unless the transceiver is pointed directly at the source. So, I just followed the strong signal until I reached the origin. Smart, mused Kate. Smart my ass, Sawyer said. (laughs) I followed him out there to make sure he didn't do anything stupid, like lead that monster right back to camp, and then we get to this giant, I, I don't know, tower sticking out of the ground. It was not a tower, Saeed corrected. Well, what the hell do you call it then? Spat Sawyer. (laughs) Saeed turned and spoke to Kate. It was uh, an obelisk, he said gravely. A huge black monolith at the bottom of a great basin. (laughs) Like some giant goddamn ancient satellite dish or something, Sawyer added. Jack cut in. You mentioned John Locke was there? Yeah, standing there with that kid, what's his name, replied Sawyer. Both of them with their hands on the damn thing. Walt? said Kate. What the hell is John Locke doing out there with Walt? We asked the same question, said Saeed. He said that they were hunting, and then he handed me this. Saeed reached into his pocket and pulled out a small black cube, inlaid with symbols, just barely visible in the moonlight. A shiver went up Kate's spine. Locke had this? she asked inching closer, absent-mindedly feeling the identical cube that lay hidden in her pants pocket. He had twenty-three of them, Saeed said, with a tone of awe in his voice. I told you not to touch the thing, said Sawyer, who was now pacing back and forth behind Saeed. John Locke says he found them scattered all around the tower. Obelisk, whatever. Who knows what they are? Jack cut in. Kate knows. Kate's eyes widened, and she turned to Jack. What? You've got one in your pocket, he said calmly. (laughs) You found it in the cockpit. What? said Saeed. And you picked it up too? said Sawyer, incredulous. Is everyone out of their goddamn minds? (laughs) Kate felt cornered. She took a step away from the men. I I don't know what it is, Jack. Jack nodded, but pressed the issue. I think you've got a better idea than the three of us. Kate didn't know what to make of this. Yes, she knew the symbols. She'd known them since before her earliest memory. Why they were here on this island was another thing entirely. Kate shut her mouth and stared at Jack, pleading with her eyes. She took a steadying breath. 
Jack? I don't know what these things are. Let's ask John Locke. To Kate, it seemed that Jack sensed her unease before giving her a slight nod. He turned to the other men. Said, could you go let Michael know where his son is? And take a closer look at that cube, will you? Let us know if you figure out what it is. Said nodded and took off down the hill. Don't bring it to camp, man! Drop it! shouted Sawyer, who then rounded on Jack. You're gonna get us all killed, Jack! If Kate found one of these things where the monster attacked, then for all we know, the monster's attracted to it! Sawyer, said Jack steadily. Kate had it for weeks, and we haven't been attacked. That doesn't mean... Sawyer, Jack cut in. <laughs> this whole island, this whole island is a mystery. We're completely in the dark here, and we don't know the rules of this place. If there's a monster out to get us, we're not going to stop it by sitting on our hands and doing nothing. We're going to have to accept that the only way we're going to get out of this mess is by taking risks. Sawyer stared Jack down for a few moments, then said in a calm voice, You do whatever you want, Jack. But when these people start getting picked off one by one, they'll know who to blame. And I'm sure you'll be happy to tell them, replied Jack. Sawyer turned and stalked away after Saeed towards the bright fires of camp. Kate and Jack watched them go. They're numbers, Jack, said Kate, not looking at him. She watched as Saeed reached Michael and delivered the news of his son's location. Michael stood from his seat next to Hurley and blundered off into the woods again. Sawyer made a wild gesture with his arms and followed the man, no doubt, no doubt trying to keep him out of trouble. Numbers? Jack asked. She continued to watch the camp, though she could feel his gaze on her face. On the cube. She had taken it out of, it out of her pocket and was now absentmindedly turning it in her hands. One for each face. Six total. All numbers. <laughs> she handed the cube over to Jack, who took it and inspected it. Mm, these don't look like numbers to me, Kate. They're not from around here, she said quietly. Well, what are the numbers? Asked Jack, trying another tactic. Four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-three, forty-two. She chanted and Whoa. walked off down the hill towards the campfires. From episode two, Andrew writes Star Trek The Next Generation, based on the series created by Gene Roddenberry. Captain's Log, star date 64118.3. <laughs> Something's rotten in the station of Farpoint. <laughs> Science officer Data has reported that First Lieutenant Riker and his field unit has been incapacitated while investigating a strange computer system, thought to be of alien origin. Data believes this computer to be the cause of apparent supernatural phenomena experienced by those inhabiting the station. He has suggested that I personally join him on the surface to put this issue to rest. While unconventional, given my rank, I have decided to honor his decision. I have little doubt of this situation's connection to the challenge presented by the being Q and wish to see it done successfully. My crew's safety depends on it. I have, I have left Second Lieutenant Worf in charge of the bridge in my absence and will now proceed to the beaming chamber. End law. <laughs> Picard felt the solid metal floor underfoot as his weight returned to him. 
Although only moments ago we stood on, the ble- on a beaming platform aboard his vessel, the USS Enterprise, <laughs> he now stood thousands of miles away in the massive central atrium of Farpoint Station. He was flanked by two soldiers on either shoulder, all carried phasers at the ready. Set to stun, the captain ordered. <laughs> they did as he commanded. A door to his right parted open with a soft hiss. Science officer Data appeared through it. Captain, please, right this way. The android gestured to, gestured to the passage behind him. Officer Data l- led Picard and his crew through a series of long, tube-like passageways. Though made of transparent plastic, little outside could be seen, as harsh winds blew up thick clouds of brown dust. As he walked, Picard watched the dust curl and twist across the enclosure. What secrets did these conditions obscure? Full report, Officer Data, he commanded. I traced a series of cable made of an unidentified material to the hub station ahead, Data explained. Upon reaching the hub, Lieutenant Riker and the rest of the unit joined me inside. While searching the room for the network's source, I heard phaser fire. I found my way back to the room's entrance, where I found our medical officer dragging Lieutenant Riker into the exterior vestibule. Lieutenant Riker was unconscious. The officer claims that the remaining members of the unit opened fire on one another without warning. Lieutenant Riker was hit during the skirmish, but thankfully he stunned the initial attackers before being disabled himself. Has he awoken? Picard asked. Not before I had left to welcome you, sir, Data replied. Data led them into the vestibule to the hub station. A woman in the blue uniform of a medical officer knelt over Lieutenant Riker, who was awake but obviously disoriented. An additional man and woman in red uniforms lay unconscious nearby as Picard and his, and his party approached. Medical officer, report, he said. At this, the officer immediately stood at attention. Captain Picard, Lieutenant Riker has only just awoken and has been mostly incoherent thus far. He's repeating himself over and over. At ease, officer, Picard began. Continue to your work. The officer knelt back down to Riker. Parker... Picard joined her. The first lieutenant stared directly ahead. His pupils were dilated. He didn't seem to notice Picard or the medical officer's presence and continued to mutter inaudibly. Number one, Picard said. (laughs) Number one, can you hear me? Riker didn't respond. Picard leaned closer and positioned an ear next to the man's mouth. Here, he heard what the man was saying. The captain's stomach tensed. What is he saying? The medical officer asked. I, I can't make it out. Imzadi, Picard replied softly. <laughs> what? She asked again. Picard stood. Imzadi, he said. Please, continue to your work, officer. She nodded and complied. Picard looked from her to the hub station door and back to his science officer. Officer Data, in Lieutenant Riker's report earlier today, he mentioned supernatural phenomenon appearing across the station. Can you elaborate? As best as I am able, sir, the android began. Based on the experiences of today, I have posited that this station is somehow able to conjure objects based on human desire. One only needs to vocally state what he or she wants, and that object will appear physically to him or her. Show me this, Picard said. Officer Data's chin dropped slightly before he responded. I'm afraid I cannot, sir. The effect only applies to human desire. As an artificial intelligence, I am exempt. (laughs) Additionally, this room seems to be exempt. Officer Garvey, would you demonstrate? 
The medical officer perked up at this. Yes, uh, of course, Officer Data, she replied. I want a bottle of water to quench my thirst. Picard and his unit waited expectantly, but nothing happened. Picard turned back to his science officer. Why do you believe this room to be exempt? I believe it to be a neutral zone, sir. A safe place to escape an event like we here have experienced. This hub contains the source of the network causing these phenomena. I have seen it. However, in that room, perhaps due to proximity, the effect isn't limited to verbalized stimuli. It can sense neurological patterns in the human brain and use that information to materialize the object of desire. Desire. Officer Garvey can attest. Picard looked to the medical officer. The color had drained from her face. She nodded without looking up. Why have you not gone back in to disable it? Picard asked Data. I tried, sir, but I need a human to join me in the room. I only saw the source when it was activated by the presence of a human. Picard looked down at the unconscious crew members beside Riker. What had they seen that had caused them to lash out at one another? I will assist you, Officer Data, he said. He then turned to the crew members in his party. I will not risk any more of my crew to the effects of this infernal system. He pulled his <laughs> phaser from his belt and handed it to the soldier on his right. If I do not see myself when I exit that room, do not hesitate, he instructed the man. Engage. <laughs> yes, yes. The man looked as if he wanted to retort, but he didn't. Yes, Captain, he said. Picard gave him an appreciative nod, then turned to Data. Lead the way, Officer Data. Affirmative, sir. Data proceeded to the door. He hit the release, and it parted with a hiss. Data entered the darkened room and stood next to the interior door release. Picard followed. As he crossed the threshold, Data closed the door. The room was large and octagonal in shape. Its eight sides curved upward to form a dome. But they were constructed from mental plating, not transparent plastic. Two massive banks of servers towered before Picard, creating a corridor toward the, toward the network hub at the room's center. Picard followed Data between the server banks toward the hub. It was cold in the room, to keep the servers from overheating. Picard could see each cloud of breath escape his lungs. He noted that no such clouds escaped his android companion, who turned to him as they reached the room center. Captain, I would suggest you stay in here, in sight of the exit, in case you need to make a swift exit. I will be in the posterior section of the chamber, where I believe the source to be located. Once the source presents itself, I will work to deactivate it. However, I will need you to keep the system occupied and active while I do so. Picard nodded. With that, the android walked away and disappeared behind a server bank across the room. Not a moment later, Picard heard a voice from behind. Jean-Luc? It said. To Picard, the temperature of the room seemed to drop several degrees. A shiver overcame his steady posture. He knew the voice but he did not turn around. Jean-Luc, it, it repeated, is it not you? Please, turn. <laughs> Let me look at you. He hesitated before replying. I cannot, he said. I will not. But why not, Mon Amour? Picard tensed. The likeness of the voice was uncanny. How was this possible? Because you are not real. He replied firmly. It did not answer right away. Picard wondered if it had gone, but he didn't dare turn. 
not until he heard from Officer Data. How do I prove it to you? He had finally replied. There's nothing to prove, he said. Le please, leave me be. What about a story? It said. Leave me be, I said. His voice broke slightly as he spoke. How about Normandy? 2039? <laughs> Picard felt the sensation in his eyes then. Tears began to form. Normally, he would have wiped them away, but his arms felt numb. The voice continued. You came to visit me. You were on leave from the academy. I remember because you were wearing your beautiful formal uniform. I was walking home from the market, arms full of bags, and I caught sight of you standing at my front door, hand raised to knock. But you stopped before your hand ever made contact. It was as if you sensed me. Then you turned around, and our eyes met. I was so excited, I threw my bags into the air and ran to you. You met me halfway, <laughs> and do you remember? Do you remember the rest? I do, Picard replied. <laughs> his vision blurred from the tears welling in his eyes. We embraced, and as we did, we were enveloped by a cloud of powdered sugar. <laughs> a bag had torn open when you tossed it away. You looked at me, and I looked at you. Picard trailed off. You looked at me, she said, and he turned to her. And together, we shared the sweetest kiss I've ever had, he replied. Indeed, she was there, flung out of the memory before him, exactly as he remembered. I thought I'd lost you, he said. A tear ran down his face. Just then, Officer Data came over the comm. Captain, I have located the source. Do I have the order to disable the system? The android's voice seemed so distant. Picard gazed at her face. It hadn't aged a day. It was the same face he had looked into all those years ago in France. Captain, do you read? Data asked. He approached her. They were now only inches apart. Her hair, her skin. Captain, her eyes. He gazed into them as deeply as he had outside her house that day, as sugar swirled around them. He gazed into them, but he saw nothing. They were her eyes, yes. Wide, blue, lovely, but behind them. Captain, do I have the order? Data insisted. In that moment, he chose to look at her eyes rather than into them. He took in the rest of her face. Jean-Luc, she said. Mon amour, he replied. And then he said, Make it so, Officer Data. <laughs> Affirmative, the android replied. And in what felt like only an instant later, to John Luke Picard, the vision was gone. A few feet behind where it had been, a figure had stood. It was the bean, Q. He was smiling, impressed. Oh. And then Picard fell to his knees. From Episode 3, Marcus writes The Big Lebowski, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. And so it came to pass that the dude found himself in a bit of a predicament. You see, the bowling alley was out of half and half. Now, they didn't carry half and half, but they also didn't have vodka until the dude started bringing that in either. Anyway, <laughs> they were out, so he'd have to use full cream for the Caucasian he was mixing. He didn't like mixing without half and half, didn't feel right. But he had to mix the Caucasian, because if he got up to bowl, Walter might figure out he was drunk when he slipped and fell on the alley again. 
Then he'd lose for tripping the line or something. He thought, Today wasn't one of those days where the dude quite understood how bowling worked, aside from knocking down pins, and he didn't care to ask Donnie about it. If he kept drinking, he'd have an excuse not to bowl. (laughs) Still, the cream. You have any half and half? The dude took his words slow so he wouldn't slur them. Do I look like a fucking cafe? Walter was angry. (laughs) Not at the dude, but, you know, angry. Walter angry. The dude smiled. He had never considered if Walter looked like a cafe. He hadn't known any angry cafes before, but maybe it was because he'd never bothered to ask. (laughs) Sitting by the scorecard, Walter didn't look like people would buy coffee inside of him. Though he was getting fatter, and maybe if the people were very little... I don't think you look like a cafe. But would a rose by any other name be a cafe if it was called a cafe? Think on that, Shakespeare. (laughs) What? You gonna fucking roll again, or should we just say I won? Roll. Roll. Rolling. Rolling on the river. The dude put down his half-made drink and shuffled over to his bowling bag. He didn't keep a ball in it, but that didn't matter, because he wasn't looking for a ball. Instead, he pulled out a smaller bag. And a lighter. He lit the joint before Walter could protest about the game. (laughs) Proud Mary, keep on burning, he said as he exhaled a long breath. (sighs) If you're not gonna bowl, at least make yourself useful and give me a hit of that, Walter said. The dude complied. I wish I had grass like this back in Nam. The shit we had was weak, and I never did go in for the heroin. Walter (laughs) handed the J back to the dude. The dude opened his mouth and tried to remember if he remembered anything he could add. But then Walter kept talking, so the dude went back to smoking. Of course, I wish I had someone to bowl with here. It was only a couple (laughs) steps for Donnie to come over from his lane to where Walter and the dude were sitting. But it still startled the dude when Donnie spoke. I'll play with you, Walter. I think I... I think uh, you might actually have a chance this time. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> yes. Walter gestured for the joint. The dude passed it over. A cafe probably wouldn't do very well if it yelled at passerbys. The more the dude thought of it, the less likely it was that Walter was a cafe. <laughs> right, Donnie said. It took him longer to walk back to his lane than it had for him to show up, but soon he was rolling strikes again. Tell you what, Lebowski. Next frame takes it. I bowl, then you go. If you can call that a game. The dude considered this. If a rose bowl was a game, then the bowl would be done if you called the game rose. Walter fixed the dude with one of his army stares. You're an idiot. Are you going to bowl? The dude was feeling less drunk as he got some smoke in him. He figured if he focused really hard, he'd have a good chance of hitting a couple pins. Walter spat on the alley floor. That was right smart of him, the dude thought. Most places you couldn't spit indoors, but the dude supposed the owner wouldn't mind because the lanes were meant to be slippery. Walter was always figuring out things like that. Must be his military mind. (laughs) Donnie stopped his own practice and came over to watch as Walter picked up his ball. He didn't say anything when Walter stepped to the line and made his approach. This probably had something to do with the broken finger Walter had given him the last time he gave advice. (laughs) You know, Walter began in that far-off way he got sometimes, like he never made it back from his deployment. 
I like to imagine the Pims as my enemies. I look down there and think about the men I want to kill, the men who done me wrong. But when I see their red-ringed heads, it's not Charlie's face, I imagine. <laughs> no. We squared our debt out in the bush. It's the <laughs> bastards who sent us out there. Johnson, that sumbitch Nixon, a whole lot of assholes in suits. <laughs> think of them, and it's easy to clear the field. <laughs> the dude looked up from the last puff of his joint in time to see Walter knock down nine pins. That's most of them. The dude wondered who the pin that was still standing represented. Lincoln? Walter grunted as he stood by the ball return. Donnie took this as an invitation to talk, though the dude noticed he put his hands in his pockets first. This is a real easy pickup, Walt, Donnie said. Just straight down the middle. The key is not to break your concentration. Drown out any distractions. Let me see your hand, Walter said. Donnie took his hand out of his pocket, but he didn't present it. Instead, he made a gesture like his lips were a zipper, and he was zippering them shut. Walter was mad enough to ignore him. As he approached the line, the dude saw a bead of sweat roll down his cheek. He hated losing, and the dude reckoned that he probably didn't know the dude wasn't sure of his ability to stand, much less roll a ball. Unfortunately, the moment he let go of his ball was the same moment Donnie decided to break the zipper. Hey, Mod! he shouted. Good to see you again! <laughs> oh, do shut up, Donnie, came Mod's familiar voice. <laughs> Precise and in control. The dude turned around and confirmed that the voice was still attached to her. There she was. Redheaded, pale, and prettier than a painting of something pretty. Walter's. <laughs> Walter's annoyed scream told the dude that he had missed, without him having to take his eyes off Maud. The lack of an echoing scream from Donnie meant that he had kept his hands away. Hello there, lady. What can I do for you? The dude smoothed his beard and managed to stand. Our first go didn't take. I need you to have intercourse with me again. Immediately, I'm ovulating. Sure thing. Just need to finish this game first. Walter got to his feet with the balance of a drunk cat, which was about as good as the balance of a normal man. He was proud of that. He grabbed no particular ball and made his way onto the alley. You lucky son of a bitch, Walter said. His anger about Maude beating out his anger at Donnie. Why is a classy dame like that bothering to sleep with you? It's like the roses. Why was Shakespeare a gardener? He just was, and he liked renaming roses. I just am going to have sex with Maude. The dude rolled the bowling ball with a stagger that brought him facing the wrong way after he let go of it. When he righted himself, he saw that all the pins were gone. Unfucking believable Walter yelled. How'd you do that? You picturing the VC? Those bastard presidents? <laughs> you know me, the dude said with a shrug. I ain't no fortunate son. <laughs> With that, he had his arm around Maud, though mostly for support, and was walking off. He almost bumped into her ear and used the opportunity to tell her that they'd have to do it at her place. His just felt naked without the rug. Damn thing really tied the room together. Yes. Yay. Yes. Unfucking believable, Walter repeated when the dude was out of earshot. There's one lucky stoner son of a bitch. Donnie eyed him nervously, not sure if he was allowed to talk. Walter invited him to open his mouth with an utterance of, Am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Donnie said tentatively. He did lose his rug. Am I wrong? Walter repeated. You're not wrong. You just shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that. The end. Yay. From episode four, Eric writes Arrow, based on the series created by Greg Berlanti, Mark Guggenheim, and Andrew Kreisberg. This week on a very special episode of Arrow. Have you ever been to the Glades, Miss Smoke? <laughs> That's what he had said that morning when this all began. She hadn't been to the Glades, of course. Who would spend even five minutes in that greasy part of town unless they had no other choice? Felicity had mentioned this at the time, but Mr. Queen assured her that, quote, This city will surprise you. Also, he added, be sure to bring the new prototype. That evening, she went to the address he had scratched onto the back of a business card and met him and his bodyguard, Diggle, at Queen Consolidated's Annex Warehouse. She wasn't even aware such a place existed. Mr. Queen immediately sent the other man off to go fetch coffees, then ushered her through the rolling garage door, flipped the switches on the wall, and the lights all came on one at a time, each blazing bulb accompanied by a loud electric thud. It was... For all intents and purposes, a ninja training ground, and it had it all. (laughs) Mr. Queen tried and failed to mask his excitement as he threw off his shirt and began (laughs) demonstrating everything. (laughs) That monkey bar thing from American Ninja Warrior where you have to throw your whole body and the bar itself from one precarious shelf to the next? Check. A climbing wall that curved upside down over a pool of hungry crocodiles? Check. A ridiculously low limbo bar that you could only pass under by lying on your front and slithering along on the ground using your individual ab muscles like tiny caterpillar feet? Check and check. He had never explained to her why the place existed, but Felicity wasn't an idiot. The steady stream of secret assignments he had pushed her way in the last several weeks, all relating to new and creatively deadly designs for high-tech bows and arrows, (laughs) had more or less given it away. You're the hood. Admit it, she said after he had finished showcasing the man-sized hamster wheel. (laughs) To his credit, he hadn't tried to hide the truth. That's just the name this city chose to call my brand of justice he had said, as he wiped the sweat from his face with one of several clean t-shirts that hung from pegs on the wall. But now you know my secret, he continued, a roguish smile playing on his face. You might as well see everything. (laughs) It was a half hour later when Mr. Queen realized that Diggle had never come back with their coffees. (laughs) He immediately put on the trademark hood, continued to refrain from putting on a shirt, grabbed the bow and quiver, and was out on the roof with a speed that reiterated to facility the fact of the man's incredible stamina. She felt that it was implied that she should remain in the relative safety of the warehouse, but what would be the science in that? After winding her away around the elaborate obstacle course, avoiding the crocodiles, and just barely skirting past the machine that spits darts for reflex training or whatever, (laughs) she hit the button that raised the front door and found Diggle standing there, hand thrust forward as if about to knock. He held a coffee carrier, the kind with a handle that suspends two drinks below, and a panicked look on his face. Diggle? Felicity said, the chipper smile sliding off her lips as she read the man's expression. 
I, I saw him. Had to go the long way around. Don't want him to follow me back here, he puffed, clearly out of breath. Saw who? she asked, reaching out a steadying hand. But as she did so, she saw him on the street behind. Short, round, completely hairless, and shining in the midday sun as if he had just been through a rock tumbler. A polished boulder, roughly the shape of a human being, and he looked smug. Alabaster Stone, whis <laughs> whispered Diggle. Felicity knew the name, of course. Stone Industries was Queen Consolidated's main competition in the tech field, and it was rumored that they had set up shop right next door to QCHQ just to skim industrial secrets from them. There were other rumors as well. Everybody wondered where all of the supercriminals that had infected the city were getting their tech, and Miss Mr. Queen had said, It all leads back to Stone. He's a plague on this city. I think he caught the trail, Diggs, she breathed, not taking her eyes off the human cue ball. <laughs> Diggle spun and swore to himself as two thugs in suits stepped in front of Stone and hefted huge weapons, pointing them directly at Felicity and Diggle. The design of the weapons was very interesting, with oversized barrels that rested on the thugs' shoulders, and Felicity was just in the middle of trying to decide if they were some kind of sonic disruption devices similar to the ones they were working on at Queen, or merely a set of run-of-the-mill gr grenade launchers, when Stone spoke. "'Where is he?' <laughs> the man shouted, in a surprisingly high-pitched voice. "'I know you two work with the hood!' "'What is he talking about?' Diggle asked Felicity. She kept her mouth shut. Suddenly, a loud growl of a voice directed their attention to the warehouse roof to their right. "'I'm here, Stone!' <laughs> it was Mr. Queen, standing tall on an overhang of the roof that jutted out partially over the street. He was standing casually with his right foot up on the edge of the wall, his bow slung over his naked shoulder, eyes shaded by the dark green hood." He held a small black book in his hand, opened as if reading. He continued, And it looks like your name is in my book. How convenient. <laughs> Stone smiled at this and said in a barely audible whisper, Blow it up! Before Felicity could react, the giant cannons went off with a deafening roar. Felicity's heart seemed to stop and she felt a heat radiating from her chest. Time slowed, and in the span of a blink, Two huge grenades erupted from the barrels of the guns and sped straight for her, quicker than she would normally be able to perceive. She instinctively raised her arms to protect her face, briefly mused her disappointment that the guns were boring old grenade launchers, and just before her eyes squeezed shut in anticipation of the blast, three things happened. First, an arrow screamed down from above and struck the rightmost grenade in mid-flight, which sent it careening to the left, directly into the path of the second grenade. <laughs> the two struck each other and exploded simultaneously, which threw Felicity and Diggle off their feet and back through the open door and into the warehouse. Second, another arrow came flashing past her face and struck the handle of Diggle's coffee carrier, thus ripping it out of the man's hand and pinning the coffees perfectly against the cement wall to their left. Third, a final arrow struck the pavement near her feet, bounced off the smooth concrete, ricocheted off of the crocodile climbing wall, sending it back towards the door, and striking true on the heavy chain that held the garage door open. The chain snapped, and the door slammed to the ground just as their feet cleared the threshold. 
They landed heavily on their backsides, but were otherwise completely unscathed. The door now stood between them and the enemies outside. Felicity sat up with a gasp and looked to the wall on the left, noticing that the coffees had survived the ordeal without a single drop spilled. <laughs> they swung back and forth like a pendulum suspended from the arrow. Another set of explosions shook the warehouse, and Diggle helped Felicity to her feet. They both ran to the other end of the training ground and took off through the fire exit, setting off a blaring alarm. They ran around the building back to the front and discovered that the two thugs with grenade launchers were now dead, the feathered shafts of arrows planted <laughs> deeply in their skulls. Mr. Queen was now on the opposite side of the street, but it appeared he was completely out of arrows. He crouched for cover behind a pickup truck as Stone himself grabbed a grenade launcher from the body of his fallen subordinate. You've been disrupting business, vigilante! <laughs> the fat man screamed as he struggled with a weapon. I will not abide you killing my comrades! <laughs> and I will not abide what you've done to this city! Shouted Mr. Queen in return. The cannon fired, and Mr. Queen dove. The truck exploded in a giant fireball as he rolled across the street and collided roughly with the wall of the warehouse, only a few feet from where Diggle and Felicity stood. Uh, Mr. Queen? Asked Diggle apprehensively. Is that you? The hood <laughs> had fallen to reveal his face. He made momentary eye contact with Diggle before standing and facing Stone, who was preparing to fire again. In that moment, however, recognition danced in Stone's eyes as he studied Mr. Queen's face. Oliver Queen? <laughs> he exclaimed. Talk about a twofer! <laughs> he laughed. He laughed as he squeezed the trigger. In that moment, Mr. Queen nodded to Felicity. It was time to test out the new prototype. She quickly dug into her pocket and pulled out a small metallic cylinder, like a bullet, and tossed it to him. He snatched it out of the air without even looking and affixed the bullet to the string of his bow. Suddenly, the cylinder expanded with a puff of compressed air, telescoping into a full-sized arrow. As soon as it happened, Mr. Queen released, sending the arrow sailing through the air and directly into the barrel of the grenade launcher. The impact shook stone for a moment as his eyes widened in fear. Alabaster stone, said Mr. Queen with a cool flame in his voice. You have failed this city. And with that the grenade launcher exploded. <laughs> the end. From episode 5, Andrew writes The Name of the Wind, based on the novel by Patrick Rothfuss. I believe you wanted to hear about one of my confrontations with my rival, Ambrose, back at Emory. There are quite many from which to choose, but with our time being short here and now, I believe I have the perfect option. It is perhaps not the most grandiose choice, but I am fond of it nonetheless. My friends Sim and Will and I were at the Aeolian, the inn near the university where, we, where I would perform regularly. Although we were boys then, due to my talents and Demru heritage, the barkeep would serve us ale. It tasted of piss, but we didn't care. We had many fine a time there at the Aeolian. This particular evening began no differently. I was to perform later that night, and Sim and Will were along to support me. We were imbibing the piss ale and prodding each other about our failed attempts at courtship. 
Sim, as you know, was a hopeless romantic. He fell in love with every girl who gave him the least bit of attention. On this occasion, one of Sim's girls was at the inn. I recall it vividly, as I too had been admiring this girl from afar. I had seen her before, around campus. Her name was Denna. Sim <laughs> caught me gazing at her sitting at a table nearby, and he punched me in the shoulder. Taylor's tits, I said, grimacing. Steady on, Sim. I'm going to need that arm later. <laughs> Don't go getting any funny ideas, dear Quoth, Sim replied. That one's mine. Yours, eh? I said with a smirk. And how's that? I don't see you over there with an arm around her. In due time, Sim began. I'm simply working up courage. Will finished. <laughs> he gestured to the pint in Sim's hand. Sim grinned. Precisely, he said. And with that, he drank down the rest of his ale and jumped to his feet. Wish me luck, fellows. Do us proud, I called after him. Sim walked toward Denna's table with the, ki- with the confidence bestowed upon him by youth and ale. Will and I watched as he approached his target. She was sitting with another girl whose back was toward us. We could hear their conversation as the room was small and uncrowded. Hello, ladies, Sim began. How's your evening going? I saw Denna smile at her friend. She had a lovely smile. Our evening has been good, Denna replied. How are you? Spectacular, Sim said, much louder than he had intended. The girls laughed, and I heard Will groan beside me. Sim continued, I'm just enjoying a pint with my friends. A pint, Denna asked. You look a tad young for that. Nah, Sim assured her. The barkeep knows my friends and me. We're regulars. Sim paused for a reaction here. I recall Denna nodding her head in feigned admiration. I could see that she was faking it from across the room, while Sim just carried on obliviously. I haven't seen you in here before, but I believe I know you, he said to Denna. Do you now? she replied. Yes, yes, you study at Emory? <laughs> we do. We're, we're in our second year. <laughs> As Sim tried to connect with Denna by discussing studies, my attention was pulled by an approaching threat. Oh no, I heard Will say. It was Ambrose. My rival was slowly sauntering up behind Sim, flanked by his usual coterie. His countenance bore that incessant smirk, a constant reminder of his privilege and entitlement. At the sight of him, I felt my body grow warm as anger flooded me. Ambrose gave Sim two very hard, very deliberate pokes on the back. Sim turned, and his face went pale immediately. I caught his eye glance over quickly to Will and me. Ambrose, Sim began. Unusual to see you here. What are you doing, Sim? Ambrose asked. Are you boring this beautiful creature with your first-year horse manure? (laughs) Back off, Ambrose, Denna demanded, but Ambrose ignored her. She's a second-year kid, he continued. (laughs) You have nothing to say to her. Can you even name the books in the Arcanum? Uh, uh, uh. Sim hesitated. He had been caught completely off guard, and by no less than Ambrose, who greatly intimidated him. Taylor's Ta- Ambrose cursed. Can you at least tell me how many books there are in the Arcanum? In his panic, Sim was at a complete loss. Ambrose started to laugh, and his entourage joined in. 
Before I knew it, I was standing between my friend and my rival. I could feel my heart beating against my chest, as if it wished to break out and strike a victorious blow to this enemy. <laughs> and what about you, Ambrose? I began. Can you name those books? I didn't think you went to class. I thought you paid people to do that for you. <laughs> Ambrose's smile faded. He looked upon me with dark, hateful eyes. I have better things to do than waste my time proving anything to you, filth, he said. It pains me that Emery accepts any wayward peddler off the street. I am a Demaru, I stated. An ancient and regarded clan. I earn my education through dedication and hard work rather than jots and talents. Ambrose's companions started at this, but their leader stopped them with a wave of his hand. Edimaru, Ambrose growled. Your commitment to that title is relentless. After our last meeting, I asked my father about your clan. He claims to have seen them perform before their demise. He said their show was a mummer's farce. I had to call upon every ounce of my will in that moment in order to stifle the desire to attack. Ambrose could tell. His smile returned to him, and, to add further insult, he burped in my face. <laughs> At this, his companions broke into hysterical laughter. However, rather than tip me over the edge, the burp gave me an idea. <laughs> Sim, do you have a matchbook? I asked. Sim was startled to be brought back into the conversation. Uh, no, he replied. I do, Denna's friend said. I turned and she handed it to me. I caught Denna's eye as I turned back to Ambrose. She seemed concerned at my actions, but a slight raise of her eyebrow teased curiosity. Ambrose, I began, the stench of your belch betrays you. You've been drinking tonight. What of it, he challenged. Are you, are you going to tell on me? He snorted dismissively. No, I replied. There's no need for that. I'm simply interested in whether or not you'd like to take part in a little demonstration of first-year magic. I brandished the matchbook. What are you going to do? Ambrose asked. Burn me with your ickle matches? That's pathetic. He and his co cohorts chuckled. On their own, yes, I agreed. They don't have much bite. However... I paused to strike one of the matches. A diminutive flame appeared on its end. I held the lit match with a steady hand between Ambrose and myself and continued. When combined with a healthy fuel source, this little flame can do a great amount of damage. A fuel source like, say, the alcohol currently held in your stomach. <laughs> Ambrose's countenance became grave. You wouldn't dare risk malfeasance. He said. Wouldn't I? I asked. I thought I was a lowly peddler, a ruffian with hardly two drabs in my purse. What do I have to lose? Ambrose looked at the match's flame as it burned ever closer to my fingers. Although the heat of the flame caused me great discomfort, my hand remained steady, as did my gaze, directly into the eyes of my rival. A moment after the flame began to lick my fingertips, Ambrose took one last contemptuous look at me. 
and turned away. He and his posse left the bar without another word, and I blew the match out as I watched them go. I cannot believe it, a voice said. I turned around. It belonged to Denna. That idiot actually believed you could do that, she said. (laughs) Performing sympathy with a source inside another person's body? That's incredibly difficult magic, even for an advanced user. She let out a laugh, which made my heart skip a beat. (laughs) In reply, I simply shrugged and grinned. A few hours later, after another great performance on the Aeolian stage, I was walking down the street with Denna beside me. I don't recall what we were discussing, because I was just so overwhelmed to be in her presence. I do, however, recall passing by Ambrose and his cohorts sitting on the patio of an expensive cafe. I didn't, they didn't acknowledge us as we walked by, but before we rounded a corner, Dennis stopped and shouted back at them. Hey, Ambrose! He perked up and saw us. What? He answered. Do you like apples? She asked. <laughs> Ambrose looked confused at this. Uh, yeah? Why? He replied. Denna gestured back and forth between herself and me, drawing focus to the two of us. Together. And she shouted back. How do you like them apples? And with that, she pulled me around the corner, and we walked off laughing into the night. The end. From episode six, Marcus writes Fifty Shades of Grey, based on the film directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, written by Kelly Marcel, and adapted from the novel by E.L. James. He liked it when she watched. The thought of it disgusted her as she observed the two of them on the monitor. Christian Grey and Anastasia Steele locked in a heated negotiation, while Maria Hart looked on, an electronic voyeur at her employer's command. There were practical considerations for Maria's assignment, of course. Only last year a young woman had managed to get a knife through security. But Maria couldn't help thinking that the task was more about giving Gray control. He had security personnel who could monitor the meeting, but he insisted on having Maria watch instead. He claimed it was due to the confidential nature of the discussion, but after three years she knew better than that. Gray loved having her do menial jobs, knowing that he owned her. She had received her MBA from Stanford with top marks before coming to Gray House, an array of bright futures stretched out before her. She could have been anything. Now she worked for him, and she was nothing. Do you have any idea how much money each minute I waste in this room cost me? Gray said. His voice was pitched in anger, but Maria knew it was just a tactic. Anastasia wasn't as sure. She moved back unconsciously in her chair at the outburst. The poor thing. She thought this whole performance was a debut. That the lines hadn't been rehearsed on a hundred other girls before her. It was like seeing Paul McCartney in concert and thinking he had come up with Live and Let Die on the spot. Supposing (laughs) it was lucky that the fireworks timed out so well to the music. (laughs) We need to move on or you need to leave. Gray's fist pounded to the beat. To her credit, Anastasia stood her ground. She didn't flee though that likely would have been better for her in the long run, and she didn't cave and sign. That would have put an early end to Gray's game, and Anastasia would have been let go shortly thereafter. Gray grew bored quickly. When business came so simply that he was a billionaire by 20, owning people became the only thing that brought challenge into Gray's life. But even then, there were people who gave in too easily for his taste. 
I'm not moving on until you elaborate, Anastasia said. The contract mentions the use of ropes, chains, straps, and other items of an equivalent nature. I need you to be specific. What else would you like to tie me down with, Christian? She bit her lip then, and Gray's <laughs> hand started caressing his tie. His eyes danced over her body in that way he had once looked at Maria, as if clothes were never a barrier to his perception. She almost gagged. While Gray went on about the various harnesses and improvised restraints he enjoyed, Maria turned her attention to her other business. She would have to make a full report on the negotiation, but she had seen enough of them to be able to divert her focus to more pressing matters. She looked at her to-do list. She had already replaced or refreshed the contracts in the glove compartments of each of the luxury vehicles in Gray's garage. (laughs) She had also sent out the week's schedule to her doppelgangers in the office. Each of the perfect blonde women in matching gray skirts had come from impeccable backgrounds. Harvard Law, Johns Hopkins, Eloise had been a literal princess. (laughs) Gray liked to make the mighty meek, and the meek rise to his level, only to be thrust down again. Maria turned to whittling down her inbox. It was one of her only duties fit to the position of Executive Director of Media Relations she held by formal title. When she had started in Gray's employ, she was the envy of her fellow graduates. Seven figures, equity, and an enterprise that was devouring the globe? She had called him Christian then, before she learned the truth. She never shared with her classmates the reality of what her job entailed. She had simply let go of them, further separating herself from the ability to break free of Greyhouse. Even the emails didn't keep her occupied for long. There were thousands to sift through, but they were mostly press inquiries. Reporters hoping in vain for a chance to interview the great Christian Grey. Surely they knew by now it was futile. But then again, if a college senior like Anastasia Steele could get FaceTime. If only they knew what had gone into that selection process. Maria pulled up the file on Anastasia. The cover photo now showed her security portrait, but inside there were still the long-lens surveillance pictures Gray had made Maria collect when he was last on the hunt. There were more details in the file than Anastasia knew about herself. Psych evaluations from her family and friends that had been gathered under the guise of job recruitment or university improvement surveys. Copies of every piece of electronic communication she had ever sent. Viewing habits, both mundane and pornographic. Even the results of the blood screening she had unknowingly volunteered for when Greyhouse sponsored a blood drive on campus. She closed the file. She was revolted by her complicity in the treatment of Anastasia, as she was by the man who had ordered her into it. Maria had always convinced herself that she was better than these girls who came through, who told Gray they loved him and believed his hollow, echoed reply. She had never slept with him. But she was lying to herself when she said she had never wanted to. She had seen the tapes when she started. So exciting, so wrong. Part of her had wondered what it would be like to know that the tie Gray wore on the cover of Forbes was the same one that had restrained her as she called out in ecstasy. He only wore ties that were part of his domination when he made his rare press appearances. She looked back to the monitor. The hidden feed from the stark industrial meeting room still showed her a perfect image of the negotiation. Anastasia was leaning forward now, and Maria noticed that a button had come undone from her black top. Gray looked ready to pounce. They'd moved on to page three of the contract, and Maria knew from experience that they would soon be done. What she didn't expect was how disappointed that made her. Somehow, Anastasia had seemed different. It wasn't the nosedive she took the first time she met Gray, where he had seen many women lose their equilibrium around him. It was the confidence in her voice. 
Maria thought Anastasia could truly challenge Gray, and as such, she might be the first to actually walk away. Once the contract was signed, that possibility was gone. Sure, Anastasia could still leave, but he would have already won. She'd go into the file of women that Gray thought he owned. But who was Maria to condemn Anastasia for her youthful infatuation? Maria knew the truth. She knew what Gray was capable of, but still she stayed. She hated herself, but still she stayed. It wasn't the money. It wasn't the ambition, so what was it? It used to be the hope that things would change, that the grunt work would lead to something real, that she could use her position in Greyhouse to make a difference in the world. But those were all excuses that she had exhausted long ago. She had made the world worse. She had enabled a monster. So what was it? Anastasia gasped, and Maria looked up to see that they had reached the section of the contract detailing sex toys. All manner of dildos, vibrators, beads, and rings were listed. At the end, though, there was always a blank space to be filled in by hand according to the kink Gray saw on his target. <laughs> Based on Anastasia's interest in journalism, Maria imagined it might be a fountain pen, but a full quill wasn't out of the question. Maybe a typewriter. <laughs> Before long, Anastasia initialed, and they were on to the last page of the contract. The diagrams were visible on the monitor, but Maria knew what they entailed without needing to see them on the hidden camera. They were the full range of sexual positions expected to be performed by Anastasia, detailed down to the degrees of flexibility required. Anastasia would have to initial by each one, and... Greg was looking at Maria through the monitor. In reality, he was staring into the camera, but she knew his gaze was meant only for her. Even on the screen, it was piercing and humiliating. What was worse was that Maria knew exactly what it meant. He wanted her to schedule a physician's appointment for Anastasia to clinically verify that she had been truthful in her claimed flexibility. A truly grim request, and Maria knew it only from a glance. She knew that glance and a thousand others equally as deplorable, but she didn't know why she stayed. She thought on this for a long time. And then, Maria did something she hadn't done in months. She laughed. How could she expect Anastasia to leave when she still stayed? The thought reached her with an absolute delighting clarity, and Maria was standing before she realized it. She left the room and the monitor and the years of bullshit behind. Each step towards the lobby buoyed her spirits, and when she pressed the call button, she had a naive hope that the elevator would actually come. From Episode 7, Eric writes the Graveyard Book, based on the novel written by Neil Gaiman. It was a dreary, gray morning when nobody in Scarlet met the graveyard's only witch. I mean not to tease you, dear reader, with talk of bubbling cauldrons and old women with warts on their noses, or of dark rituals and spells cast to ensnare unsuspecting children. These are old tales that have been told and retold countless times in households and schoolyards in every land I can think of, so they don't need any extra telling from me. Scarlet herself had heard these dusty witch stories dozens of times, mostly from her teachers, and perhaps that they are the reason that she behaved the way she did that morning. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Bod, you mustn't walk over the graves, it's bad luck, (laughs) Scarlet pleaded, as nobody led the way from the O'Neill mausoleum towards the hill. It's not like anybody's home, Scarlet, nobody replied emphatically without altering course. Marcus is visiting relatives in France. (laughs) They were off to the lookout spot on the top of the hill next to Josiah Worthington's coveted plot, and the quickest way to do that without skirting too close to the dark grave where the ghouls lurked was to cut over a few graves. 
Scarlett made a wide loop around the grave of Marcus Goddard, 1891-1951. Loving father, devoted husband, avid accordionist. He will be missed, but not that racket. And hurried to catch up to nobody. You're walking too fast, she huffed. Nobody rolled his eyes. Your legs are too short, he counted. I'm taller than you, she said, putting on a burst of speed in order to walk a little ways in front of the boy. It's just I've never met a witch, and I think I'd like to, said nobody, with a ponderous tone in his voice. A witch, she repeated, a knowing smile on her face. Do you even know what a witch is, Bod? He thought for a moment before answering. No, but Silas says I ought. (laughs) This caused Scarlet to stop in her tracks and turn to face nobody, who halted as well. You don't know what a witch is? She asked in a way that made nobody's cheeks feel hot. Nobody, everybody knows that witches are bad. They bake children in pies. (laughs) Nobody sniffed and kicked at a little white flower sticking up past a crumbling old headstone, his hands thrust deep into his pockets. Scarlet often liked to point out how much more she knew than nobody. Her father was the smartest man in town, after all, and so she must be the smartest girl in town by default. It made him feel sad to be proven that he knew so little, but it cheered him greatly to prove that he knew something she didn't. Maybe not all witches are bad, nobody suggested. Scarlet just looked at nobody's feet. You're standing on another one, she said, crossing her arms. Let's go this way, around the plots. With that, Scarlet took off to their right, directly towards a dark grave overgrown with weeds and a wicked-looking hawthorn shrub with blackberries. Of course, I'm sure you know what that means, dear reader. Scarlet! Nobody called after her. Not that way! But it was too late. As you might expect, three jumbles of tattered cloth and rattling bones leapt from the open grave and had Scarlet before she could even scream. The ghouls all laughed together and held Scarlet aloft like a trophy. Nobody ran over and kicked the nearest one in the shin bone, which snapped off and clacked against the cracked headstone. The ghoul lost its balance and fell to the ground, which caused the laughter of the ghouls to redouble in mirth. Oh, good kick, young Owens! squawked the shortest one as the shinless ghoul crawled to retrieve its lost part. Give her back! Nobody yelled. The tallest one, which held Scarlet, kicked playfully towards nobody with a long skeletal leg. He spoke in a deep baritone to the short one. Good kick indeed, Earl. I dare say Roebuck has had that coming to her, has she not? Give her back! Nobody repeated jumping in vain to try to reach Scarlet in the grip of the tall ghoul, who kept shoving nobody back with his ladder-like legs. Scarlet made barely a squeak as she was held in the air, swaying back and forth with the rhythmic motions of the ghoul, its sharp, bony fingers no doubt poking her ribs. "'Had it coming to me, my phalanges!' shouted the one (laughs) called Roebuck, as she snatched her shinbone out of the hawthorn bush and began reattaching it to her leg. They've come into our garden, after all. What decent child comes a-visiting just to start kicking shins? I blame the schools. The three of them laughed at this, as Scarlet finally managed a timid, Bod, what are they? Her voice was barely a whisper. Nobody was about to respond when Roebuck cut in. What are we? 
By Jove, what despicable manners you have! What are we indeed? Heaven forbid the little brat asks us who we are, eh? <laughs> Scarlet was red in the face and looked near tears as she said, Okay, who are you? Oh, look at the marvellous courteousness our young friend possesses, said the tall one, shaking Scarlet with glee. Allow me, this handsome chap over here, the ghoul said, <laughs> using Scarlet to point to the short one, <laughs> is the undisputed Earl of Sky and Sea. Don't dispute the title. <laughs> that comely lass over there, he pointed again at the one with the newly attached shin, is the Sears and Roebuck catalogue. <laughs> she did a curtsy and gave a devilish grin to nobody. And lastly, there is my good self, and I am called God's only son, our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> the ghoul bowed low, which brought Scarlet within jumping height for nobody. Without another word, he grabbed Scarlet's trembling hand and yanked her out of God's only son, our Lord Jesus Christ's grip, and began running like mad up the slope of the hill. The Sears and Roebuck catalogue shouted, Rude, that! from behind them, and the laughter of the undisputed Earl of Sky and Sea rolled up to meet them like a thunderclap from a distant storm. Nobody was finding himself struggling to run faster than Scarlet as they puffed their way closer and closer to Josiah Worthington's plot. He briefly harbored the, uh, the hope that the ghouls had let them go, but he spared a quick glance over his shoulder and nearly fell to the ground when he saw that they were mere yards behind them. Keep going! Scarlet shouted, holding on his hand as he stumbled. They crested the top of the hill and blew past Josiah's tomb without so much as a glance. Nobody wasn't exactly sure why he had steered them up the hill, but his mission to find the graveyard's only witch was the, was the most recent tangible thing on his mind. The impossibly long strides of God's only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, soon <laughs> proved too much, and just as the two of them entered the dark and twisted woods to the rear of the hill, they were both snatched up like two puppies about to run out into traffic. <laughs> no, 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 chided God's only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, as they struggled against his grip. We were just getting acquainted. He shook them and bonked their heads together as the <laughs> other two ghouls laughed. It was that lucky moment that the witch decided to enter our, enter our tale. The ghouls didn't know it, but they had stumbled into, onto a very dilapidated and overgrown grave, much like the one they had all come from. Unlike the ghoul's grave, however, the headstone on this one had fallen over years ago and bright green flowers had sprung up to cover it. The grave had belonged to Violet Emily Hackensack, 1675 <laughs> to, to 1696, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. And her only visitor in the last hundred years had been Silas. The ghouls suddenly stopped laughing, and the hands of their captor trembled and froze. Nobody in Scarlet twisted around in their uncomfortable hand, per hand perches and looked from one bony face to the next. The ghouls were all standing frozen, exactly where they had been, but they all looked as if they were miles away. Slowly, like mist rolling in from a quiet sea, the soft voice of a young woman said, You've strayed on to the grave of a witch. <laughs> there was a cold menace in her voice that chilled nobody. 
He looked around for the source of the voice and finally found it, a ghostly visage hovering just to the side of the Sears and Roebuck catalogue. <laughs> she slowly approached nobody and continued, For that there shall be payment. Violet reached out a transparent hand towards nobody, and he felt fear. Silas had urged nobody to find this witch, which told him in his heart that the witch would be good. And yet, as he looked upon her cold, impassive, beautiful face, he found himself believing Scarlet. Perhaps this witch was just as bad as she had warned. Perhaps he was about to be baked in a pie. <laughs> the hand gently touched the skeletal claw that held him, and the bones of the long fingers turned to dust and blew away on the breeze. Nobody fell onto the broken headstone and watched in silent wonder as Violet floated to the other side of th and released Scarlet in the same fashion. She fell next to him in a heap. She looked terrified. The witch addressed the ghouls, saying, You've given part of yourself. I will consider this payment enough. With a wave of her hand, the ghouls were suddenly animated again. My hands! My beautiful hands! <laughs> shouted God's only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he fell to his knees before them. He turned for support from his friends, but they were already bouncing off down the hill. The tall ghoul jumped up like a spring and took, up, uh, took off after them, shouting obscenities the whole way. Nobody stood and reached a hand out to help Scarlet up as well, but she pulled away, her eyes locked in terror on the ghostly witch. Scarlet? he asked, stepping closer to her. She turned onto her knees, scrambled up, and began running. Scarlet, it's a good witch! he shouted after her as she flew down the hill towards the graveyard exit and her home beyond. Nobody thought about chasing after her, but then he remembered he had come this whole way to look for the witch, and now he'd found her. What's worse, he hadn't thanked her for helping them. He turned to her and found a soft smile on her lips. Your friend looks like she's seen a ghost, <laughs> she said quietly. Or a witch, he offered. He looked at her a long moment before saying, Thank you. Violet just nodded, then faded from nobody's view, leaving him standing alone in the woods at the top of the hill. He smiled and spoke to himself. I told you she was a good witch. From episode 8, Andrew writes Deadpool, based on the film written by Rhett Reese and Paul Vernick, and directed by Tim Miller. So let me just start by saying everything was going great before the dragon, and that absolutely none of the blame for said dragon should ultimately be placed on me, okay? No, that was all Colossus's fault. You see, I planned the shit out of Weasel's birthday party. I spent, like, two hours on it. I walked into Spencer's Gifts, signed a few autographs for some ugly, overweight teenagers, and walked out with one of every weed-themed party favor in the joint without paying a dime. Please note, there were multiple weed puns in that sentence. My brother Weasel loves the ganj! <laughs> I also invited everyone, booked catering from Kadoba, hired a pair of particularly chesty strippers to serve drinks all night, and ordered a Dairy Queen, Dairy Queen ice cream cake with an edible photo of Weasel and me hugging it out on top. It was all <laughs> goddamn perfect. And then two things happened. 
First, and I'm sure you're painfully aware of this already, this is a fucking sham fiction. The guy who's telling this story, Drew Nielsen or whatever, doesn't even know who I am. He hasn't read my popular series of Marvel comics, nor has he seen my massive hit movie. It's only the, mes- the most successful X-Men movie ever, Mr. Nielsen. Not good enough for you, huh? So yeah, I apologize in advance on behalf of this shithead writer. This isn't good enough for you, for me, or for my beloved Wheeze. <laughs> Secondly, Colossus showed up to the party with an unwelcome plus two. Shortly after he showed up, I pulled him aside near the bathrooms at the back of the bar. What the fuck, Kali? I whisper yelled. <laughs> What is matter, Deadpool? He asked like an idiot. <laughs> what is matter? I repeated, only angrier. Look who you brought with you! Ooh, he replied. Maggot? He gestured to a booth across the bar where a pasty white mutant named Maggot sat alone. He was in the midst of gagging up his second maggot stomach creature thing, while the first <laughs> nibbled on a Kadoba burrito bowl on the table. Sir... He's bit gross, Colossus continued, but he has good heart, like you. He smiled at me like an idiot. (laughs) I'm not talking about him, man, I said. I'm talking about her. I pointed dramatically. Colossus turned to look. What's What's wrong with Vange? He replied. When he turned back to me, I met him with a glare. Dude, when she sees blood... She turns into a giant, fire-breathing dragon. Colossus blinked like an idiot. Duh, there is that. But do not worry, this friendly party, no blood will be spilled. And then he leaned very close and added, Right? (laughs) I don't know how Colossus does it, but he can always read me, even through my mask. Wasn't like I was acting suspicious by pulling him aside and reprimanding him for being for bringing an uninvited guest who just might ruin my secret agenda for the evening. I immediately perked up. Of course, I said. Then I gave him a chummy slap on the shoulder, which hurt my hand. Ow! And I escaped <laughs> into the crowd. May I confide in you for a second, dear listeners? Okay, cool. My <laughs> motivations behind throwing this party were partly selfish. Yes, I love my little wheezy cakes and want him to have the best time. But I am a very busy adult with many important things to do. I can't just take a night off. I have to find Francis. So, I did the responsible thing and anonymously invited one of his cohorts to Weasel's birthday bash with the intention of torturing him for information and eventually killing him. But now... The likelihood of that happening was kaput, because Colossus brought along Vange fucking Whedon, a.k.a. Crazy Dragon Lady, a.k.a. Ruler of Everything. (laughs) I glared at her through the crowd. She was talking it to another guest at, of all places, the table with the ice cream cake. She was helping herself to a piece as she spoke. You better not take the weasel face piece, you fire-breathing bitch, I thought. I called dibs. (laughs) Then, as if on cue, I heard a beautiful voice call out, Deadpool! I immediately, immediately, my vitriol evaporated. I turned and splayed my arms. Wheezy! I called back as we shared epic programs. The birthday boy was here. You really outdid yourself, pal, Wheezy said as as we detached from our sweet embrace. He began gesturing around the room. 
the cannabis leaf string lights, the Chichen Chong posters, the ice cream cake. Tonight is all about you, baby, I said to my best friend in the whole wide world while scanning the room for Francis's man. You know, while I'm thinking about it, let's go get some of that cake, Weasel said. He began to lead me through the crowd. It's going to taste so good. I just smoked a bowl in the back room with like a 90-year-old man who wore big sunglasses indoors. He smiled at me the whole time and talked about how he created the X-Men. It was fucking wild, man! Uh Uh-huh, yeah, I said absently. While I was surveying the room, I saw no sign of my target. However, as we approached the cake table, I did see the bane of my evening. Hey, Deadpool, she said. Oh, hey, Vange, I replied without any attempt to hide my contempt. What's your problem? she asked. I looked down at the plate in her hand upon which sat a half-eaten piece of ice cream cake. I could make out the remainder of the image on top. Weasel's left ass cheek. How dare she take such a key piece? I see you're helping yourself, I said with some serious sass. Um, yeah, she replied with matching sass. The sign says to? She pointed to the stupid sign I created earlier, which stated, Please help yourself. (laughs) Well, I began, Just be careful. We wouldn't want you to melt the ice cream cake, which also stands as a very heartfelt symbol of the tight bond of friendship between and love between two heterosexual men. (laughs) Saved you my face piece! Weasel exclaimed from behind me. (laughs) Thanks, babe! (laughs) I replied over my shoulder. Vance shook her head. If you keep your cool and those swords, those swords sheathed, that's hard to say, those swords sheathed, <laughs> you have nothing to worry about, she assured. By the way, do you know Yuri? Oh no, I thought, it can't be. Vange tapped the shoulder of the man behind her and he turned around. Yep, sure as shit. It was Francis's <laughs> man, Yuri Kilimov. He immediately <laughs> recognized me and reached inside his jacket. I reacted by reaching back and grabbing the hilt of my right katana. I pulled the blade out of its sheath and brought it down in one sweeping motion. A moment later, the bloody end of Yuri's arm hit the ground with a wet thud. Before I had a chance to drop an awesome one-liner, the pistol clutched in the hand at the other end of Yuri's arm hit the ground and discharged, hitting Vange in the foot. She cried out in pain and collapsed to the ground. Her half-eaten piece of ice cream cake with the partial image of Weasel's ass fell into a puddle of Yuri's blood on the floor. Yuri, meanwhile, was screaming out in agony and confusion like most men do when they lose a limb. (laughs) Well, shit, I said out loud. I sighed and turned to Weasel, who glared back at me as best as he could given how stony he was. We gotta get out of here, man. Why? he asked as he angrily took a bite of ice cream cake. I heard a low growl rumble behind me. I slowly turned and or turned around to look at Vange, who was staring at the blood on the floor as her hands began to transform into claws. She snarled and whipped her head around to face me. Her eyes were now glowing bright red. I nonchalantly turned back to Weasel. Because this lady's about to turn into a big fucking fire-breathing dragon and burn us all to death. Then Venge roared, and the bar erupted into panic, and Weasel's birthday party came to an abrupt end. By the way, I added before running to the exit, this was all Colossus's fault. (laughs) The end. Roll credits. Special thanks. No animals were harmed. Filmed in Georgia. Yada, yada, yada. And thus, the coda.
I never thought wind could hurt so much. Then again, when your entire body is covered in third-degree burns and you're not dead, everything hurts. <laughs> the breeze felt like hundreds of knives lacerating every inch of my body. I looked at my arm. My suit had been burned away completely, and I could see the white of bone peeking through my charred and melting flesh. My Adventure Time watch was gone from my wrist. Either that, or it had melted down and become one with it. So, given the intolerable pain, loss of my favorite watch, and ruination of my best friend's birthday party earlier that evening, you might be wondering, Hey Deadpool, why weren't you freaking out? Well, that part's simple. Because I was riding through the night on the back of a giant motherfucking dragon. <laughs> Let it burn, Vanjie baby! I called out to my noble steed. Upon command, she reared her head and sent a pillar of fire roaring into the sky. I laughed in delight. It was like a 14-year-old nerd's wet dream. Deadpool riding on the back of a giant dragon. I am the Khaleesi! I bellowed as Vanj flapped her massive wings, and we soared off into the night. How's that for a fucking code of Marvel fans? <laughs> From episode 9, Marcus writes Downton Abbey, based on the series created by Julian Fellows. Downton was burning. The world was over and everyone was going to die. Or at least that's what one would believe if they were to listen to Mary's incessant prattling. Yes, Edith had seen smoke. Yes, Edith had seen smoke when she had been rousted out of bed in the middle of the night by Miss O'Brien's hollering alarm. But as Anna had been quick to explain, the fire was merely the result of a spark from the new electrical wiring and would soon be contained. There was nothing to be concerned about, and the women of Downton were merely being kept in the dining room as a precaution, while the men set about putting out the fire. Edith wished that Anna had been allowed to take shelter with them, but propriety deemed that she wait outside. Though it was hard to speak of propriety, when Edith, Merrill, Sybil, and their mother were all huddled around the faint candlelight in their nightclothes. I imagine this is what those poor souls felt like on the RMS Titanic, Mary droned. Trapped in the face of impending doom, with nothing they could do to escape? I only hope that father is all right. Your father is well, my dear, no need to worry, mother said. She placed a hand on Mary's shoulder, but it slid off as Mary began to pace. And cousin Matthew, Mary said. What if something were to become of him? Edith thought she saw a flicker of a smile in the candlelight. She couldn't have that. I imagine you would have to find something other than your proposed nuptials to complain about, Edith said. If only you had yourself for a sister, you could start there. That is quite enough, Edith, Mother said. Your sister is clearly distraught and your attitude isn't helping. I don't suppose you would like to turn to the subject of your marriage, would you? Have you seen any suitors of late? Edith bit her tongue, but Mary didn't hesitate. I would say it's possible the fire scared them off, but I must confess I didn't see any even waiting for you before tonight. Oh, worry not, sister. For I have my whole life to find a man of my choosing, though I do appreciate your concern. Mother smiled at that. (laughs) Unable to tell how much the subject of choice infuriated Mary. There we are, Mother said. Nice and civil. Now, why don't you two look after your sister while I go and see if the fire's been extinguished? Edith glanced over to Sybil, who seemed utterly unconcerned with the proceedings. She had a book with her and was squinting close to see it in the limited light. The electric lights were off limits until the cause of the fire was found. 
Are you sure you'll be safe, mother? Mary cried. The servants stress the importance of us staying here. I don't like to defer to their judgment, but they are worldly in their way, and danger goes along with that. <laughs> I won't have servants telling me where I can and cannot go in my own home. I don't much care for the military policies that Mr. Bates has brought with him, and your father seems to be caught right up in them as well. I shall have a word with Mr. Carson and see if he can bring the staff back in line. But why did you even come if you weren't afraid? Mary complained. I had to check on my three precious daughters, Mother said. If it makes you feel better, I'll have Mrs. Hughes accompany me. Is she waiting outside as well? Edith said. Indeed, Mother replied. The maids must be present to ensure that the fire doesn't get in, and glances at my girls in their nightclothes don't get out. I would be mortified <laughs> if Thomas were to be thinking of the three of you in here the next time he decided to polish the silver. <laughs> Edith was glad there wasn't enough light in the room for anyone to see her blushing though she wondered if Mary was blushing as well. Sybil seemed oblivious as she continued her reading. "'Thank you for looking out for us, Mother,' Edith said, and Mother took her leave of the room. Mary glared at Edith for a moment when they were alone with Sybil. "'Trying to think of something clever to say?' Edith said, seizing on the silence. "'I understand that generally, when you are up this late and scarcely dressed, words aren't of the utmost importance to you.' <laughs> "'At least I don't have to rely on words to bring a man to bed,' Mary said. "'They're willing to come without coercion or proof of my title.' "'Such a shame for you, then, that you are to marry Cousin Matthew, "'closing the door once and for all to all of your callers. "'It'll be like a lighthouse burning out, "'leaving the men of Grantham without an easy harbor. "'A bit like your Titanic, I suppose. "'Sailors blind in the night.' <laughs> a, blind, "'A blind sailor would seem right up your alley, sister.' I'm not surprised that was your first thought, or should I say first hope? <laughs> Sometimes, said Edith, I wonder if you are blind, or just as egalitarian as our dear Sybil. The men you allow to court you are a strange lot indeed. Who is the man with the bow tie and the red fez hat who came to call? He was accompanied by that tall Scottish woman. I'm sure he wasn't of high station. Mary said. He, he, he said he was a healer or a physician or some sort of doctor. That was it, yes. A doctor. <laughs> well, okay. Well, what a great coincidence. As you know, Cousin Matthew's late father was a doctor. Perhaps you can introduce him to your suitor and they can compare notes on the noble field of medicine. Though I know your understanding of the profession can be entirely summed up by laying down and telling men where it hurts. If you care to play nurse, I'm sure you can ask Aunt Matthew's mother about it when she returns from the city in a fortnight. I should have paid Miss O'Brien not to wake you, Mary said in a whisper. The door to the dining room closed with a loud thud. Edith had been so wrapped up in her exchange with Mary that she hadn't even heard it open. That will be quite enough! <laughs> came her grandmother's voice. Yay! <laughs> the Dowager Countess had entered the room resplendent in a full evening gown and a matching blue hat. No wonder she had taken so long to arrive. Of course, it came as no surprise to Edith that even a fire wouldn't prevent her grandmother from dressing in her finest. She would likely rather burn than seem improper. <laughs> I have heard you two snapping at each other for all your lives, and I will not hear it this night. I took my servants a full quarter of an hour to dress me, and I will not sleep for se yet for some time. 
<laughs> I am not going to have you your bickering bickering echoing in my mind tonight as I attempt to return to rest. Am I clear? Yes, grandmother, Edith and Mary said in unison. Mary, you are going to wed cousin Matthew. You may not like it, it may burn at you, but it is your duty to this family. It is as inevitable as these horrid electric lights spreading throughout the once civilized world. <laughs> I've never heard of a candle in Downton starting a fire like tonight. I swear this progress will be the death of us all. <laughs> you see, sister, Edith began, but grandmother turned on her at once. And you, said grandmother, would do well to respect your sister. I won't always be around to fight your battles, and when she inherits, you'll need her help to survive. I don't expect you'll want to rely on your looks alone. Yes, grandmother, Edith said. There was no <laughs> argument. Grandmother had a way of saying deep truths that hurt more in her mouth than they could ever hurt in one's mind. And finally, Sybil, I dare say you should put away that book. You are to be a debutante now, and reading is unbecoming of young women whose suitors would rather think they are devoid of thought and seeing. I know you want to vote eventually, but until then you'll have to live in reality. To Edith's surprise, Sybil closed her book. She never could figure that girl out. That lamb, grandmother said. Now, are there any other problems I could solve, or can we sit in peace for a spell? Edith took a chair next to her two sisters and her grandmother and pondered on the exchange. She had spent so much time bemoaning the fact that she wasn't like her perfect, beautiful older sister that she hadn't spent any time figuring out who she would like to be like. Now she had a clue, and when the smoke cleared, she knew the first thing she was going to do. She was going into town, and she was going to buy a fabulous blue hat. From episode 10, Eric writes The X-Files, based on the television series created by Chris Carter. The sound of retreating footsteps on loose gravel grated through Mulder's skull. The cut on the bridge of his nose throbbed, and blood was now flowing down his face into his mouth. He spat and took a gasping breath, twisting his body in order to get a view of his assailants, but it was no good. His hands and ankles were bound, the wet rocks of the lakeshore digging into his arms and back, preventing him from getting a good look at the men in black suits who had done this. He was helpless, and Scully wasn't there. <laughs> the morning was foggy, and the air smelled like fish. They had driven all night to get to this remote lake, following the story of a little girl who had disappeared, taken from this very shore. Scully didn't think the case belonged in the X-Files, quoting the published statistics on runaways and abductions perpetrated by family members. She didn't believe the mother's story, who had described the creature's bluish skin, fish-like fins, and monstrous set of razor-sharp teeth. <laughs> Mulder had grabbed all of the material he could find on the folklore of the Orkney Finfolk, the Irish Murrows, and even the sirens of ancient Greece that he had lying around his closet of an office, and spent the night reading while Scully drove. Let's find a motel for the night, Scully had suggested, rubbing her eyes with one hand and steering with the other. It's late. There was a tone in her voice that Mulder knew well. It meant that she thought he was being ridiculous and she didn't want to have to say it. Scully often sounded like that, but there was no malice in the tone. In fact, Mulder took her withheld remarks as a sign of trust and respect. She would go along with any crazy scheme he cooked up without a single complaint, as long as she could rub it in his face when he turned out to be wrong. <laughs> 
Her name's Alice. She's only eight, he replied grimly, reminding her of the impetus for their haste. Scully sighed deeply, but said nothing, letting the car drift a few miles over the speed limit. Splock! <laughs> a, a loud, wet sound pulled Mulder out of his reverie. His eyes sprang open, and for a moment his vision swam. He shook his head and strained his ears, trying to identify the sound, ignoring the pain in his ribs and his face. Splock! <laughs> the same noise again, slightly closer. It was coming from the direction of the lake, which lay, lay somewhere beyond the thick wall of fog at Mulder's feet. He lifted his head and forced himself to sit up, scraping his tied hands painfully on the stones as he did so. Hello? He called out into the fog. Splock, the sound replied. <laughs> it was a squishy, slapping sort of noise, like a jello mold falling onto the floor. Mulder's pulse quickened, but the slow march of the approaching creature remained steady. Splock. Mulder quickly thought back to his hasty research in the car. The fish man in all his forms was a water-dwelling creature. It was most dangerous at sea or in rivers and lakes, luring fishermen and explorers in and then pulling them under the waves to their deaths. Of course, that's not to say they weren't deadly on land as well. The fish man was said to wander inland to pick off young children and incapacitated prey. Splock! Mulder looked down at the twine that bound his feet. Incapacitated prey indeed. Suddenly, the attack of the men in suits made perfect sense. The G-men, or whoever they were, were giving an offering to the fishman that lived in this lake. They had beaten him and tied him up so he would be easy pickings for this thing. He spotted a sharp-looking rock a foot or so to his right, and he began flailing his body towards the makeshift knife. Splock! It sounded like he was only a few feet away as Mulder swung his legs toward the serrated rock and began working away at the twine. Splock! As he worked, he looked up to see a large, dark shape looming towards him through the fog. His eyes widened as he quickened his pace, though the twine was only fraying slightly. Come on, he thought. Where are you, Scully? <laughs> a quarter mile down the beach, Agent Dana Scully was looking for seashells. <laughs> if she had slept at all that night, she would have probably objected to being sent on such an errand, but as it was, she was just operating on autopilot. She stopped walking, rubbed her tired eyes, and stared out at the blank whiteness of fog that hovered eerily over the lake. The rational part of her mind told her that Mulder was being overly obsessive and downright indulgent in this case, driving all night just to look for evidence of some hairy fishman. <laughs> to add insult to injury, Mulder had asked her to go find a large conch, cell, conch shell as soon as they arrived. He had justified the request by insisting that if the creature did exist, the only known ward was to blow into a conch shell horn. Scully had agreed, but only after Mulder promised to let them get some rest afterwards. The thought of collapsing on some dingy motel mattress roused her slightly, and she gave the stony beach a sweeping appraisal. There! She jogged over to a watermelon-sized rock, reached down, and picked up a huge, perfectly formed conch that had lodged, been lodged to the side of the rock. 
She smiled blearly before Mulder's panicked voice drifted towards her from across the fog. Scully! His voice echoed. It's the fish man! <laughs> Shplock. Mulder scrambled backwards, ignoring the half-chewed twine that still bound his legs, trying to get away from the hideous creature. Although it was probably very graceful in the water, on land it seemed totally out of place. It was man-sized with blue-green scales covering its bloated, baggy, wet skin. There was a tangled mat of damp black hair on its oversized head, and a huge, toothy mouth grinned at him. <laughs> it was gaining on him, approaching faster than he could back away. Shplock! It lay an immensely powerful, fin-like hand on his leg. Mulder shouted again, Help! Suddenly, a loud, clear horn sounded some distance away, and the monster immediately released him, retreating quickly back into the fog and towards the lake beyond. The sound <laughs> blasted again as Scully appeared through the fog, poofy blouse billowing, running as fast as she could down the beach while still blowing into the shell. At the same moment... A half-dozen men in dark suits erupted from the forest all around them. The G-men ran past Mulder and into the fog, carrying handguns and nets, clearly trying to head off the creature. They all disappeared into the fog as Scully reached the spot that he lay. Scully! he shouted, a smile on his bloody face. Did you see it? Mulder, <laughs> what happened to you? she said panicked as she dropped the conch and began cutting the twine with a small pocket knife. Did you see the fish man? He insisted as his hands were freed. The sounds of a man screaming and water splashing through the fog filled the air for a moment. Who are these men? She asked, ignoring his question. Did they do this to you? I'm afraid so, said a voice from behind. They both turned to see two men in suits, one balding with a friendly-looking face, the other less friendly-looking with a plume of ginger-brown hair behind a receding hairline. "'What have you done here?' Scully asked, rising to her feet after cutting the twine on Mulder's legs. She reached into her blouse and produced her badge. "'You've openly attacked an agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That's a Class A fa "'Put it away, lady. You're out-badged here.' The less friendly man interrupted. The friendlier one cut in as Mulder regained his feet. We're sorry about the treatment, Agent Mulder, Agent Scully, but this case is no longer in your jurisdiction. We appreciate all your legwork. Another series of frantic splashes and screams filled the air for a moment. Several of the men could be heard yelling, I got it! And into the crate! <laughs> Nothing could be seen through the thick fog. Mulder spoke. You use me as bait to capture it? Why? The two G-men looked at each other for a moment. Then the unfriendly one said, That's classified. But believe me when I say we're all better off for it. Come on, Stitterson, he said, speaking to his partner <laughs> as he walked towards the lake. I want to see this merman before I die. <laughs> Hold on, Hadley, said Sitterson, bending down and picking up the conch that Scully had dropped. Hadley stopped and turned to Sitterson, who said, We'll need this for the cabin. He tossed the conch to Hadley, who caught it, grumbling to himself. 
He carried the conch back towards the woods, away from the action in the water. Citizen gave the FBI agents a smile and walked towards the fog and the struggling men, rolling up his sleeves as he did so. Mulder and Scully shared a bewildered look. "'What about Alice?' asked Mulder. "'What?' said Citizen, turning to face them. "'The little girl who was abducted,' he clarified. "'Oh, her!' said Citizen with a smile. "'Eaten, probably. Don't worry about it.' <laughs> Mulder was about to object, but he was cut off by Citizen. "'Oh, and thank you two again for all the help. "'Half the things we've collected so far are creatures you two dug up for us. "'Keep up the good work!' <laughs> he gave them both a thumbs up, then disappeared into the fog. From episode 11, Andrew writes Miss Marvel based on the comics created by Sana Amanat and Stephen Wacker, and written by G. Willow Wilson. As I laid there, flat on my back, in a dark warehouse in an industrial park, pinned to the ground by a shrieking, contorted man-mutant thing, <laughs> I really began to regret my decisions up until that point. I think it was the thing's breath, which had the delightful bouquet of rotting fish, that triggered it. Why had I let Amir get into my head again? If I had just ignored him, I would have gone to the Halloween dance like a normal person rather than go investigating shady parts of town. <sighs> Halloween is, is haram, Kamala, he had told me. Dressing up and parading around in costumes is a pagan ritual that distracts us from Allah. Ugh, he wouldn't shut up about it. I wanted to <laughs> scream in his face like that stupid mutant thing was screaming in mine. Then I remembered, oh yeah, I should probably do something about this thing. I puffed out my torso outward, and the sudden force, like an airbag, it blew the mutant off, and he landed in a nearby junk pile. I leapt to my feet and quickly looked around for, the, for a large pulley hook that I'd seen a few minutes ago. Thunder boomed outside, shaking the warehouse walls. The storm had really picked up. Thunder flashed and provided some much-welcome light to the through the large windows and skylight above. Bingo. I spotted the pulley slightly to my right. It hung about 30 feet away and another 20 feet in the air. I also caught a glimpse of two more mutant things directly ahead, rushing full bent at me. I extended my legs quickly upward and pushed off the ground, which launched me over the lunging monsters. They went crashing into another junk pile. Yeah, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of junk in this place. Uh, I retracted my legs and landed back on the ground in a three-point stance. I am Iron Man, I thought with a smile on my face. And then a mirror popped into my head again. False idols, Kamala, he nagged. These memories were really cramping my style. <laughs> my last leap had gotten me closer to the pulley. I had to get up there. I was too exposed on the ground, and I didn't know how many of those ugly things were around. The creatures had been popping up around Jersey City and Staten Island for weeks. The police were scoring every nook and cranny this side of the Hudson looking for where they were coming from. Then, finally, two nights ago, after a woman was mauled by one outside the Circle Q, Bruno fessed up to me. His brother Vic had told him that where they were coming from and who was behind it. To be honest, I wasn't really surprised. This particular culprit had been behind a lot as of late. Squawk! There's my little Miss Fantastic! <laughs> right on cue, I thought. Another roll of thunder sounded and lightning flared as he descended slowly through the air from the catwalks above. The Inventor. He was using a set of thruster boots and hand stabilizers, wired to and powered by something in a backpack he wore, like some Ooh. kind of jerry-rigged Iron Man get-up. He had obviously been raiding the Stark Industries warehouse down the street. I called out to him. What's wrong, Bertie? Someone clip your wings? 
He ceased his descent and hovered about 20 feet overhead. In addition to the second-hand flying contraption, he wore a signature gray three-piece suit, which looked ridiculous. <laughs> then again, I thought, anything he wore would look ridiculous. He was he had the body of a man and a head of a cockatoo. <laughs> Always so quick to jest, he replied. We'll see who laughs last. And with that, he let out a horrible shriek. I compulsively covered my ears. It was so shrill I started seeing lightning bolts and sound waves emanating from his beak. My ears <laughs> felt like they were going to burst into flames. I definitely preferred Amir's nagging to this. What's he doing? I thought through the pain. He isn't screaming. He must be... My gut sank as figurative light bulbs lit up all around my head. He must be calling something. Just then, a choir of muffled answering cries erupted from below. The ground before me, directly beneath the pulley, shook. I squinted through the dark to see what was going on. It wasn't solid ground up ahead. There was a pair of trap doors in the floor. Something, or worse yet, a bunch of somethings, was about to break through. The door shook again, bending from the force. They shook again. And again. Yep, time to go. I thought as I dashed forward. I had only made it a couple of steps when another roll, round of thunder erupted from outside, and the trap doors burst open before me. Despite the fear center of my brain telling me to turn around, I pushed forward. I had to get to high ground. Lightning flashed as several clawed hands appeared over the ledge. I extended my legs to twice their normal length for the last two steps and jumped into the air above the open trapdoor. I heard snarling from below, but I didn't look down. I extended my left arm out and out until I finally caught the hook in my hand. As soon as I had a firm, firm grip, I started to retract my legs, but it wasn't fast enough. Something grabbed me. I screamed. I was too surprised to hold it back. I felt my grip slip, but thankfully I didn't let go of the hook completely. I looked down to see the clawed hand around my ankle. It was one of the creatures. It glared at me blankly with black eyes and hissed through its kind of beak, kind of not beak mouth thing. <laughs> I reached up with another hand and clawed at my leg. I grimaced in pain. In response, I landed a kick on its ugly face. The blow knocked the creature free of its hold, hurtling it downward to the concrete floor. With that thing out of the way, I finally had a moment to take, the rest in, uh, take in the rest of the horrible scene. The storm outside was, rage, was raging in full force now. Thunder rolled and lightning flashed every few seconds to allow sight of the warehouse floor below. Dozens of creatures had already emerged from the trap door and more were coming. They were human-like in shape, only more hunched and contorted. Their bodies were covered in random patches of white feathers and their exposed skin was gray and wrinkly. They looked up at me hungrily, shrieking and snarling and biting and hissing and all those terrible things. I thought I saw a fire burning in their mouths and eyes. In that moment... I really missed my brother. Hideous, aren't they? The inventor cried through the din of the storm and the creatures. He was hovering about 30 feet away, well out of my extended reach. What are they? I called back as I hoisted myself up the pulley cable, putting distance between me and the monsters. Failed experiments, he replied. I've been dabbling a little in cloning as of late. <laughs> cloning? Of course, I thought. The feathers, the talons, it all started to make sense. You're trying to make more things like you? I said. And although I was confident I knew the answer, I followed up with, Why? You're a little punk! <laughs> he snarled back. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> sure I would, I said. Being the only one of your kind, surrounded by people who don't look like you or think like you, I, I get it. It gets lone shop you? 
The inventor cried as he fired a pulse blast from one of his hand stabilizers. I didn't have time to react, but I also didn't need it. The inventor's aim was too far to the right. The blast sent him spinning through the air. He obviously needed more practice with this. I seized the opportunity to scale the pulley cable and pull myself up to the top of the crane arm that held it. Another pulse beam whizzed by to my left. This one was a lot closer. The creatures below seemed to notice. They shrieked with excitement. At that moment, I looked down at them as a series of lightning flashes, the brightest I'd seen yet, lit up their faces. Some of them were looking at me with hungry eyes, but others were looking at the inventor the same way. That's when it dawned on me. He doesn't have control over them. Another pulse pulse beam flew over my head. The inventor squawked in anger. He didn't have much control over those stabilizers either. Now was my chance to strike. I started to hulk out, increasing the muscle mass across my body, but especially in my arms and legs. I had grown to about five times my normal size when I felt the crane start to give. Hopefully this will be enough, I thought as I reached down and grasped the pulley cable. I started to lift it when a pulse beam caught me in the left shoulder. I cried out in pain, and the cable slipped out of my grasp. I heard the hungry cries of the creatures below and the cackling laughter of the inventor. Frustration and fear flooded me as I swayed on my hazard on my hazardous perch. I fought to restore my balance, but the increased weight of my body was, in, was betraying me. I started to panic. But then I heard a mirror in my head. And be thou steadfast, he recited, for surely Allah suffers not the reward of the righteous to perish. I felt warmth in my heart then, and fear fled me. I extended my left arm down and grasped the crane arm for balance. With my right, I reached down, grabbed the cable, and pulled it up. I brought myself up to my full height and began swinging the cable overhead around and around. This Hulk was ready to smash. (laughs) The inventor saw this as he was lining up his next shot. He squawked in fear and fired before he was ready. As he did, I released the cable. His shot was wide off. Mine was right on. The heavy hook at the end of the crane made contact with one of the inventor's boots, which exploded in sparks. In pain and panic, he fired several stray shots from his stabilizers. One of these smashed through the large skylight window above, raining shards of glass on the creatures below. Many cried in pain and clutched their eyes. Others fled back down the door and the floor. I watched the chaos as I dangled from the crane arm, which had shifted violently when I threw the cable. I was back to nearly normal size, except for some extra muscle mass in my arms, which I used to pull myself back up. Standing safely there on the crane arm, rain pouring down from the broken skylight, I spotted the inventor, who had crashed atop a stack of three freight containers. He was trying to remove his stabilizers, which were sparking and smoldering. A few of the remaining creatures hissed and clawed at him from below, as they tried unsuccessfully to scale the sheer container walls. Yeah, he wasn't going anywhere. I chuckled at the sight. I had, for, for, I had completely forgotten about the Halloween dance. At that moment, I was where I was supposed to be. And just then, I, a thought crossed my mind. How ridiculous is my life? <laughs> Suddenly, a massive boom of thunder erupted from directly above the warehouse. I covered my ears at the sound and looked up just as the bolt of lightning passed through the opening skylight and struck the warehouse floor. The light from the impact was intense, forcing me to shield my eyes. I heard an explosion and the creature's shriek in pain. When I removed my arms from over my eyes, I looked down at the warehouse floor where the lightning had struck. My jaw dropped. It was Thor. And he was looking right at me. Miss, he called. Miss, can you assist me? I'm looking for a creature known as the Inventor. I was frozen in place, 
but my heart and mind were racing. It was Thor, and he was talking to me. Me, Kamala Khan. I can't even... (laughs) Tears welled in my eyes, and I just started laughing and crying uncontrollably. I couldn't help it. My brain was on fire. Everything I had just been through. And now this? Thor? An Avenger? Showing up here in Jersey City? Now? Like, right now? After the fight was already over? Miss, he finally asked. Are you unwell? Hearing his voice again somehow snapped me out of my delirium. I let out a couple more laughs and wiped the tears from my eyes. No, Thor, I replied. I'm just fine. (laughs) But you're late. From episode 12, Marcus writes Howl's Moving Castle, based on the film by Hayao Miyazaki, adapted from the novel by Diana Wynne-Jones. The castle moved its spindly legs reaching out one step at a time over the rocky wastes. The whir of gears and whistle of steam played their music as Sophie slept. At first, she had had trouble getting used to life with the great wizard Hal and his fantastic moving castle. The towering structure made up of little buildings that had agreed not to fall apart despite the inclinations of gravity was as different from her humble hat shop as Sophie could imagine. Now, she felt at home enough to sleep in her little room at the end of her long days of cleaning. The rocking gate of the castle became a comfort. The wailing of vowels and the tittering of spirits as they rolled off the ground and were left in the castle's wake didn't even cause her to stir. When she slept, she was whole, she was safe, and her curse seemed to belong to another life. Then the castle stopped. Sophie was thrown from her bed by the sudden action, and the reality of her situation quickly returned to her. As she scrambled to get dressed and put on her white working hat, Her looking glass showed a woman who was getting older by the minute, until all that was left of Sophie's youth was gone. So had been the pattern for weeks, with Sophie seeing glimpses of the girl she truly was before the weight of the day took hold of her. But she had no time to reflect. Hal was gone again, and if the castle had stopped on its path through the waste, someone would have to deal with whatever had caused the interruption. Withered again by age that wasn't hers, Sophie felt the need to take charge. She made her way past the hearth room, and outside onto the castle's landing. Immediately, she scanned the horizon for signs of ambush. The neighboring kingdom had become bold, and she wouldn't be surprised to see them attacking a wizard's home, especially when he wasn't around. But in front of her, she saw no machines of war. Only a rocky path, the boy Markle, and a scarecrow. Can we keep him? Markle exclaimed. (laughs) Attempting to match the appearance of his scratchy going-outside beard with an appropriately grizzled voice. (laughs) Sophie smiled. She tousled his hair, then lowered the copper steps from the landing to the ground, and made her way down to better inspect the scarecrow. Marco followed, running circles around her and the scarecrow, with shouts of, Please, 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 can we please? <laughs> <laughs> now that she could see the scarecrow up close, she realized that she recognized it. Turniphead? She said softly. Turniphead responded to this by bouncing up and down excitedly. That's a stupid <laughs> name, said the boy. I want to call him Allison. How did you get out here, Sophie mused She had seen him once before she came to the castle And something had stood out to her then No, it wasn't that he was a living scarecrow with the white red head of a turnip She had seen spirits take odder shapes than that It was something about his hat Blue and soft, crumpled, but loved So can we? Can we keep Allison, please, please? Markle brought Sophie back to the present There might not be any enemies she could see, but that didn't mean there wouldn't be soon. 
They had to get out of the waste as quickly as they could and hoped that Hal returned before they found any more trouble. We're leaving, Sophie said, but the boy wouldn't quit. Please, I'll take care of him. I'll feed him um, if he eats, and I'll clean up after him, and he won't even know he's there. <laughs> Sophie looked from Markle's pleading eyes behind his bushy gray beard to turnip head, bouncing with a fervor. Something about that blue hat wouldn't let her say no. Fine, she said. But if Hal says he goes, he's gone. I don't know how he'll take to a scarecrow. And you are responsible for him. I don't even want to see him around the castle. Over the next two weeks, Sophie saw more of Turniphead than she did of Markle. <laughs> the boy had quickly grown tired of his new companion, stating, Allison's no fun anymore. All she ever wants to do is bother you. <laughs> Turniphead had been bothering her. If it wasn't for the hat, Sophie expected she would have thrown him into the hearth fire by now, despite Calcifer's objections. But she just couldn't place it. It was one more mystery to distract her from her work and keep her from finding a cure to her curse. She woke early in the morning with the high hopes of cleaning before a turnip head could harass her. She ignored her reflection as she felt herself aging. She would have time to worry about that later. Once she did her work, she could focus on herself as much as she wanted. Mercifully, turnip head was nowhere to be seen in the early morning dark of the hearth room. She asked Calcifer to put out just enough light for her to see without drawing attention from anyone else in the castle. He glowed a soft red in response. As she scrubbed the stone floor, Sophie's thoughts were only of herself. The sight of her gnarled fingers nearly brought her to tears. She remembered feeling like she was getting older even before the Witch of the Waste had cursed her. But then, she had felt like she had a whole life ahead of her, to figure out what that would mean. Now she missed her simple hat shop, and the days of endless possibility, even if she had squandered them in her meekness. Before long, the sun's light outshone the dim flame of the hearth, and the spirits of the castle came out to join her. Spiders danced in the corner of the room, and their ballet created beautiful webs that Sophie would have to clean tomorrow. Mice ran here and there, delivering messages with great import, and Crumbly came out to see what she might be able to eat. <laughs> Sophie liked Crumbly. She was a spirit with five hands and a giant mouth who only ate crumbs. She would roll about <laughs> on her hands using her arms like the spokes of a wheel, and pick up any crumbs that had been left on the floor. These were promptly devoured. Once, Sophie had tried to feed her a whole piece of bread as thanks for helping with the cleaning, but Crumbly had refused. Even after Sophie had crumbled the bread for her, the spirit would not eat it. Apparently, she only cared for crumbs that had been discarded naturally. Spirits. As much as Sophie liked Crumbly, the spirit was loud, and her morning racket finally brought Turnip Head out from whatever corner of the castle he had been hiding in. Go away, Sophie shouted. But Turniphead just bounced happily next to her. The wooden stick that supported his body tonked merrily on the stone as he jumped. Tonk, tonk, tonk. As Sophie's anger grew, so did the pain in her fingers, as they seemed to become even more wizened. Please, just leave me alone. I have other problems to deal with. Hey, would you go easy on the kid? Calcifer chimed in. <laughs> it wasn't the first time the flame demon had stood in Turniphead's defense. This isn't about the kid, Sophie said, pulling herself to her feet with great effort. I don't care that Markle's not here. He's just a boy. This is about Turniphead and his incessant bouncing. I'm just saying that you haven't been very nice to... Nice? I'm sorry. Who has been nice to me? I've been... She tried to say cursed, but the word wouldn't come out. Working and working, and I've had enough. I don't have time for foolish things to get in my way. Sophie spun on Turniphead, calling on her rage to hold back the tears from the outrage over her situation. She prodded him as he walked. With each step, she could feel her age increasing, but she pushed through it. You can't come in here and bother me every day. You have no idea who I am or what I've been through. 
I've had enough, and you will leave me alone. She shoved him as she spoke these last words. And though it was the tired push of an old woman, it didn't take much to knock the stick off its balance. Turnip head crashed to the floor, and his old blue hat came rolling off his head and landed in the fire of the hearth. The motion that made him bounce as he stood now looked like cowering on the floor. Sophie looked from the pitiful scarecrow to the hat that caught flame, and suddenly she remembered how she knew him. She was standing over Turnip Head in the same way a witch had once stood over a poor boy in front of Sophie's hat shop. The boy had gotten in the witch's way, and she had struck him to the ground, knocking his hat free. The witch saw the desperation with which the boy had scrambled for his hat and snapped her fingers, causing it to burn. The boy had laid there sobbing and rocking back and forth until the witch left. He was clearly one of the city's orphans from the war, and that hat had been his only prize. All those years ago, Sophie had seen this tragedy and acted without a thought for herself. She had walked to the boy, picked him up off his feet, and placed her own blue hat on his head until he stopped crying. She had even given him some vegetables to eat. Seeing Turnip Head now, it wasn't hard to imagine that the boy had sought out the witch again, and walked away with a curse much greater than Sophie's. In that moment, she realized that there was only one thing she could do, no matter how much it hurt her in her withered state. Sophie walked up to the twitching scarecrow and pulled him up off the ground. The effort became easier as she moved and her arms began to feel stronger. By the time they were both upright, Sophie was tall enough that she was able to take the white work hat off her head and place it on top of the scarecrow. Amazingly, a smile formed on the white base of the turnip. Then the scarecrow was gone, replaced by a boy that Sophie still remembered. I knew you'd save me again, the boy said, tears rolling down his cheek. I knew it from the first time I saw you. Sophie was shocked that the boy recognized her, but then realized that her arms were once again smooth and young. She hadn't even noticed when the change occurred. For the first time since her curse, she realized that it didn't matter if she looked like the person she had been, and she didn't act like the person she truly was. You're safe now, Sophie said to the boy, pulling him into a hug. And at last, in her waking hours, Sophie knew that she was too. Thank you for listening to our first ever Just the Fix Shamthology. We hope you enjoyed revisiting some of your favorite stories and didn't feel too bad about revisiting your least favorite stories. As always, we love hearing from you, so tweet us at ShamFiction, find us on Facebook, or visit our website, ShamFiction.com, where you can find the text of our stories as well as links to purchase the original author's works. Keep on shamming, listeners. Sham Fiction is produced by Two Jackets Productions, which is Eric Carlson, Marcus Mann, and Andrew Neal. Special thanks to Reed Reimer for providing the music. For a full list of episodes and to read this week's fiction, visit shamfiction.com. Follow us on Twitter at shamfiction, and please, don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Sham Fiction. Write what you don't know.